0: Welcome to Speaking Out.
1: we mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and ener- to talk a little bit about uh, indigenous constitutional recognition. Those two
2: With Larissa Behrendt, It's a fresh view coming. On. on ABC Radio. This is about the future generations. And if we get all of this set in concrete and right, then we leave an incredible legacy long after we've gone of strengthening the capability, capacity and the cultural pride of our children into a future that will be far better than what we experienced at their age.
3: A National Early Childhood Strategy for First Nations Children. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. Late last year, the Morrison Government and the country's Peak Community Controlled Child Care Agency released a new strategy to improve the lives of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children. The National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Early Childhood Strategy delivers a long-term framework for government and non-government organisations to strengthen their collaboration and improve early childhood outcomes. It's also hoped the strategy will provide a pathway to meet the targets set under the Closing the Gap Agreement to reduce the overrepresentation of First Nations kids in out-of-home care. Launched at the 9th National Snake Conference in December, the event brought together Minister for Indigenous Australians Ken Wyatt and the Chair of the Secretariat of National Aboriginal and Islander Childcare, or Snake, Adjunct Professor Muriel Bamblett. Let's take a listen.
4: The significance of
3: this strategy
4: will be will long held in our memories and we'll be celebrating it for years at a time because it's the first time we have a dedicated strategy that addresses the strengths and needs of our children and families and it does that through the five key goals which were outlined by the Minister but also in the report that's just been launched. Everybody in this room knows our data for our children. We know that they're twice as likely as other children to be developmentally vulnerable, particularly as they start school. And I could spend time reeling off all the important data of the early years, the importance of it. We can't refute the evidence which suggests that access to high quality early education holds the greatest potential for improved outcomes for our children. This strategy will strengthen our ability to support you and is aimed at driving action. It focuses on priority areas, and you will all agree these are critical. Education, health, workforce. Where would we be without a strong early years workforce? Safety. We do need to focus on safety, and you all do that in your work. We need to address housing and homelessness and how that impacts. You need to also think about disability and the work that you do with children with a disability and identifying and working early to get supports in around cultural connection. How many of you do culture on a daily basis? I have seen so many examples of the work that you do. Bush kinder, Aboriginal flag raising, Aboriginal song, music, dance. All these aim to align and coordinate, particularly for us, the ability to work across as well different sectors and drive reform. This plan provides a range of specific commitments in the early years, early childhood education, And in the care space, the minister, you would have just heard from Minister Rushton about combining the four plans. So we know that this plan will also go to child protection. It will actually go to family violence. And so it will align with all of the four plans and it will work with those plans. We can see that there are some promising opportunities to improve services and supports for our children and families in the early years. We are in a good space. Governments have said they are committed. We've had a new national agreement on closing the gap in place. We have a joint council and other ministerial and advisory mechanisms to make sure that these conversations and decisions are occurring at the highest level. We also have a minister that's committed to our strategy. One of the tasks that we have going forward is making sure that we support and have these conversations on the ground with our services and our communities so that we, the two align. This is an ambitious closing the gap target that we see of 55% of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children on track against the five (coughs) domains within the AEDC by 2031. It is very much in focus for all of our work, alongside the range of health and wellbeing targets throughout life that we know we are underpinned by experiences in early childhood. We know that achieving these targets will require significant change and new ways of working to improve outcomes for our children and young people and families. And we need to make sure they're nurtured and supported. It is clear that to achieve the goals of the new Close and the Gap Agreement, our task is enormous and our efforts must span fields including maternal and child health, housing, education, disability, family and parenting support, ensuring our children and families are safe and promoting cultural identity development. This strategy presents a unique and critical opportunity for us all to work together and change the way that we support our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children and families in their early years. The Closing the Grab Agreement has provided a new context and framework for us to be able to undertake this vital work in partnership with government. And we look forward to putting the priority forms into actions together with all of you as we support and implement this new strategy. Overwhelmingly we can see the significance of this strategy in supporting the work being done by our many Aboriginal community controlled organisations and those in the NGO sector just to respond to the needs of our children and communities. We need the opportunity to build our own evidence base and programs, and we don't want to see the government replicate mistakes of the past in imposing mainstream models in a rigid ways that don't work for our organisations and communities. Workforce is a critical issue in the early years' space. We need to undertake a range of targeted initiatives that support professional development, diploma and degree level qualification attainment, leadership development and staff wellbeing. SNAKE has worked with the Commonwealth on the strategies and is pleased in the stages of development with its holistic cross-government focus to respond to the needs of our children in the early years. We need to be clear on how this high-level strategy will be put into action and achieve outcomes. We have been so proud of the work that we've done and I congratulate you, Catherine, and the team. Thank you, Minister and Naya, and the work that you've done within the yes. National indigenous. Agency, and so we really want to thank you. Thanks, Catherine. Our uh, next panelist that I will introduce, a great pleasure
1: to introduce the Honourable Ken White, Minister for Indigenous Australians, the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. Minister White made history as the first Indigenous member of the House of Representatives, And that's that's a pretty big work. That is an incredible milestone. He's also been the minister behind the, clo- the close the new closing gap plan and the release of the first Closing the Gap implementation plan. It was led by Minister Wyatt and it is part of that historic national agreement. In partnership with SNAPE, Minister Wyatt will speak on the development of the National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Early Childhood Strategy. As we've heard, it's a whole of government framework that sets the vision that all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children are born healthy and remain strong and nurtured by strong families and thrive in their early years. Welcome, the Honourable
2: Ken White. Thank you very much. It's a privilege to be here alongside each of you today, but Muriel in particular, I've known you for a long time and I've watched the way in which you have worked to influence the national reform agendas in the early years that have occurred through education, health and other sectors. And they've been critical interventions and what we've learnt over a long period of time is the patience of working to switch the way people think and react. And in the process, we bring forward the agenda of our communities to shape and set the direction that ministers need to consider. Whilst we've had primarily mainstream programs They've served a purpose, but the cultural component within those mainstream programs have not been a strength. And we have our children walking in two worlds. I often hear people say that Aboriginal kids uh, lack confidence and their self-esteem is not as strong as you would expect. But I see those same kids out in their community after being at a school or in a a centre where they're predominantly with their own family, their own community. And they are completely different to what you see within those setters. Now, I've always maintained that we don't lack that. What we have is uncertainty because of the cultural context in which we are sitting and we are placed. Those of us from the early days in the works that we did, often singular in the fights that we had. But as time has evolved, it's become much more constructive in the way that we are working in partnership. And that was my commitment right at the beginning. This policy would not be done out of my office, but would be done in partnership with our people as we've done with Snake. So the national agreement on closing the gap sets the foundation for efforts to improve the lives of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children, including young children over the coming decades. And I want us to think this way What we're doing is not just for our children now, but for our grandchildren and great-grandchildren. This is about the future generations. And if we get all of this set in concrete and right, then we leave an incredible legacy, long after we've gone, of strengthening the capability, capacity, and the cultural pride of our children into a future that will be far better than what we experienced at their age. And I think that is the driving factor for me, that our community has an opportunity now with the leadership of SNAKE and my agency to strive in that direction. A strong start to life is vital and we want all children to feel safe, be healthy, feel ready and want to participate and learn at school and for parents and carers to feel empowered to guide children's learning and development. The strategy provides a community-informed and evidence-based pathway to achieve national agreement targets and outcomes for early childhood and to fulfill joint commitments to priority reforms. At the heart of the national agreement lie four priority reforms, and the priority reforms articulate a program of reform to transform how governments work with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, and through this, achieve better outcomes. Working in this way challenges us to work differently. It presents new opportunities and complexities. And some of those complexities are our personalities and how we drive this. I often get frustrated when I see us take 20 steps forward and then come back 12, because as governments change, priorities change. And if the truth be known, the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths and Custody, which set the foundation work that we're talking about today, was a reality then but we never involved in true genuine partnership, our people in that journey Mm -hmm. and governments implemented the reforms. One of these complexities in undertaking the work Muriel that you and your team and my agency did was COVID. It certainly impacted on our capability and capacity to consult face to face with our people. It's important to recognise the goals and outcomes and the opportunities of this strategy fall within the responsibilities of government, non-government, but more importantly, our community. And we will need to work in partnership to realise the dreams that we aspire to. By working together, we can achieve meaningful change for all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children wherever they live. Because if the principles that we have set ourselves the priorities we've identified, and the actions that translate, then the geographic diversity of this nation should not be an impediment, but instead should be underpinned by the work that you've all done. And it really is a privilege to be here with you all today and to be part of this incredible launch. It's groundbreaking, and what gives me great pride is that our mob have been in the thick of this co-designing. So congratulations to all, and I look forward to our panel discussion.
1: Thank you, Minister. Now, if, this is that extraordinary part of the um, panel where I have to introduce myself. So Catherine Little, Chief Executive Officer, Snake National Voice for Children. I'm not going to talk much, but what I will talk to before we get into the questions is that theme about how communities need to be involved. And what is incredible about this framework is it is looking at the ecosystem, you know, it is all those parts that are fundamental to creating the best possible environments for our children to grow up strong. And one of the great gifts of that was the ability to do the national consultations and to hear from our services and our communities on the ground about what was working, what could be improved and how we might do that together. And I cannot explain what a gift it is to hear from them on the ground. What was also incredible was the number of synergy in what everybody said. And without fail, they they reiterated the need to place culture at the front and in the centre of all our approaches. So that being said, it is time to start taking a look at some questions, diving a little bit deeper. So first question up, I might throw to you, Minister White. From your perspective, what is a key opportunity that this new strategy provides to improve outcomes for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children and how do we get it moving?
2: Look, I think one of the things that I think is an absolute strength and that we have an opportunity to do is to bring our communities into play in respect to where early childhood services are delivered. If I think of the COAG reform agenda under Prime Minister Rudd. Money was made available for early childhood centres and the states were supposed to contribute to the salaries. But they bought in the top end of Australia people from the south, non-Indigenous people from the south to do and run those centres. The community of Fitzroy, and I always remember June Oscar, attending a meeting and having a conversation with me beforehand because she was preparing for a particular individual from the Education Department of WA who had been overheard by June to say, June Oscar will not get her way. June didn't react angrily. She just went in that meeting, quietly sat, listened, and then said, we as women want this for our children. We want to be involved. We want to be partners. And I think that's shaped June's thinking in her report of Women's Voices. Because when you read that, that whole ethos of partnering and being part of a child's education and a child's early years is absolutely critical. And I'm always reminded of a photo that May O'Brien, who since passed on, showed me. And she said to me, Kenny, what do you think? And there was this old woman sitting down with a group of kids and she had a stick in her hand and she'd drawn a circle And you can see that she was teaching from a cultural perspective Mm -hmm. using the dirt. I can imagine as she talked, she would have blended contemporary context Mm
0: -hmm.
2: with cultural context. And that's where I see the incredible opportunity because I was also taken by Tom Kelmer's work out in the APY lands where he went and did some work to look at how do we change thinking around Aboriginal children's mm. knowledge and world experience, combining it with the trajectory for English as an acquisition of language to succeed within schooling? And he found that our kids had about 300 English words. But when he had the mothers and he engaged a number of women from the community, mothers and grandmothers, in the classroom who did code switching.
0: Mm.
2: And explaining what an English word meant in language, and then conversely the language uh, back into English, they, he moved those children one quartile on the bell curve for the Napalese test. So it really demonstrated that culture is integral to the formative years of a child. And look disadvantage, and I came from living in poverty. I know of what it was like to not have all the things that every other kid had but my mother kept this focused on succeeding and telling the stories and that's why i've always believed that early childhood and early years of life have to be the foundation for successful futures and this work will help to change the challenges that we see now for our young women and young men when I have a 19-year-old say to me, I want someone to tell me they love me, I sat there dumbfounded thinking, why aren't we saying this naturally? We used to. So the foundation of what's in the work that Snake has done is it'll take us back to partnerships, it'll take us back to community involvement, community engagement. But what I hope it does, is it empowers our families to play a pivotal role in reshaping a strength that we've had for 60,000 years. Because if we didn't have that strength, we wouldn't be here today. So I remain extremely optimistic that partnership is important. Commitment in the long term is important. But we as a community, when I step out of politics, I want to see us put pressure on governments, regardless of who they are, to say this is a foundation stone that we have laid. We are not changing the construct of the future in building the careers and pathways to better opportunities for our children.
1: Thank you. Listen, I want to pick up on the element of when the Minister was describing the different ways of learning and how we were learning through multiple tools. And in the way I try to, I guess, understand the two worlds is getting a grip on different frameworks. And it was interesting how you described that because. In my brain, my, I, I immediately thought to the way our manner taught us to speak and, and to interact. And for example, I never say no in my head, I say we are itcha, no. I go through three languages before I hit it so that I understand the different ways that I can apply those words. So I think that really leads us neatly into our next question, which is about well, it's all good and well for us to say yes, we put culture at the heart of this. We understand that our children thrive when we have access to those mechanisms that are grounded in our our being and our environments to tell us who we are so that we can be proud, proud of our families, proud of our communities. But what about making it accountable? How do we do that? And we know that the Closing the Gap Agreement is designed to address accountability of governments to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, communities and organisations. So how, Aunty Muriel, how does this strategy help to keep all stakeholders accountable for implementing reforms that will genuinely change early childhood care services in Australia?
4: I think that's a really challenging question to answer Mm. because it's got many, many different aspects that you can focus in on. I think some of the important things that have been said, I mean, I just want to go back to a couple of things that the Minister says. Particularly, I was thinking when he talked about changing lives for children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And knowing that, you know, like even for myself, my mum was raised on Kamma, Gunja in a mission. My dad was born on Lake Tyre's mission in Victoria and put off the mission when he was 14 because he had this in. And then I think of the lives we lived in abject poverty. And so I think we are seeing generational change. We are seeing things change. And I... I do think that as Aboriginal people, we've taken on a lot of learnings and a lot of adaptations to a different life. But I just see, you know, and we often talk about it, like 80% of our families are doing really well. And I think when you look at those, you look at strong culture. Always what I've had is strong aunts, strong, strong uncles. I've had my grandmother that was very... very very forthright in growling at me and teaching me Aboriginal ways. And I taught people often about the story of my grandmother. We would often go during holidays to do different things. And so in order to supplement our income, we would pick beans, we would go tomato picking, we would Mm -hmm. spend time. And my grandmother would take us tomato picking and by about three o'clock she'd say, all right, you kids, you can go and run wild. And we did run wild. But would use the trees and say, "You need to be back here before the shadow of the trees go into the ground, because that's when the doulagars come out." Well, you can bet, dollar we were back before the shadow of the trees went into the ground. But that was sort of my grandmother's way of keeping us. And I think that there are many things that we still hold on to. And I think colonization, invasion, has created for us various challenges, but. But a question on accountability, I think a lot of the close the that particularly, we've been working with the government and the Coalition of Peaks have been really in partnership with the Commonwealth and all of the jurisdiction to give strong accountability mechanisms to be able to work. We've got the Productivity Commission. We've been able to set up regular joint council meetings There's implementation plans being done across each of the states and territories. And so I think we've put the structures in place to really hold ourselves accountable. I think the key bits of work that are happening across each of the states and territories is the modeling and the accountability that we need to do to hold governments to account. So if we're setting targets, how do we actually model those targets and put numbers against them and be able to hold each of the states and territories and the Commonwealth accountable? I know that the Minister's area and Commonwealth have really been working at this time on commissioning, on looking at how do we actually pender services to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. I think that the Commonwealth is also looking at a, a human services workforce strategy. So all of these things are aligning and will align with our strategy, and I think that's critical. Cool. I think we do need to understand how do we do better Yesterday I sat in on New South Wales where they talked about the new commissioning process that they're introducing in New South Wales in child and family welfare. And what it actually supervises is that Treasury sits in the room with Aboriginal organisations and DOCS to be able to determine how they will shift responsibility, accountability, funding, and include Aboriginal people in decision-making. So I think we are hearing of a new way of Aboriginal people being able to negotiate better outcomes and hold governments to account.
1: It's interesting, isn't it, because it's certainly, even in the work that Snake is doing, we come up against little hurdles that we have to jump consistently and it does speak to the need to be really looking at systemic government reform. So this piece, can't work without that piece and I think that is one of the beauties of the framework is it's said, this isn't department's responsibility this is the responsibility of multiple departments and, and unless we're moving all those pubs at once they are going to block what is the mechanism that unblocks it and then how do we move it from there and, and how do we ensure that we, we are getting different so one of the things that I find when I'm doing consultations on the ground is sometimes people feel very very frustrated because they don't necessarily see change so they, they hear that we've moved policy. But what does that mean? They've heard that there's a new program being rolled out. They've heard that there's this new agreement that we can leverage off and use. And certainly, I would attest to that. Snake has used that. We, well, I have done cartwheels with that agreement. I promise you, it is every time I use it, I think, "My no goodness, this is a clever document." So, again, just pushing. If you've got the chance, read it. But uh, I might throw it back to the minister on the ground. What do you think our communities can expect to see as? these changes come into
2: play? I think it's going to vary. And partly my commitment to the voice is that we don't always listen to local community voices. We negotiate at a high level. And look, I've been guilty of this myself when I used to be on the National Aboriginal Education Committee and some others, where we'd take our own knowledge into those meetings and we would argue for change. But the most tangible one for me was when I worked in education and the people from the Nutanjara lands, there were 14 communities that wanted schools. And I was instructed not to support the Commonwealth Grants Commission funding uh, the building of those schools within those communities because it would cost in terms of salaries and recurrent. When I went to that meeting, I went as a public servant But my heart was with the community because you had children who weren't getting access to education. So I supported the building of those schools. It cost me when I got back, but I was prepared to make sure, and this is what we've all got to do, we've got to be prepared to make sure that what we hear about what's needed on the ground that we start to advocate and argue for that having the national strategy will make a difference because every state and territory government is going to be accountable. But we've got to reach out to communities across Australia and say, what's happening on the ground here? When you talk about Lajamanu or you talk about Balgo Mullen, which is on in Villa on the WA borders, ministers and Leaders have got to get into those communities and spend a day with the community, not just a visit to an organization. We've got to learn to reset with the community and start to have the conversation about okay, what do you know about this closing the gap? And what is it that you need in this community that we're going to have to start to argue for? I've seen it happen with land issues. We've done it well. I used to be head up the Aboriginal Lands Trust and we used to sit with a whole community and talk about country and why that country was important and what I needed to do for a 99-year lease. But we've not done it in other areas well. Land issues, we do it extremely well. Snake does it well in terms of getting out on the ground, and I want to compliment Snake for that. But the rest of us have really have to take those stories out to our communities so that they know what closing the gap is. When you hear of a target, 17 targets, That means nothing. When somebody says, you taste our water, or you climb up on the water tank and have a look inside the tank and it's green algae and some dead pigeons, and that's the water the community is drinking, no filtration. That's where the tangible challenge for us becomes. How do we make sure that our people know on the ground? Technology's taught us that we can connect, by Zoom, and I've done that with the Desert Rangers and a number of other lead organisations right across this country. But we have to tell the story of what the National Partnership is. We have to tell the story of the early childhood strategy, and we have to tell the story about what do we mean by the four priorities. Our people just want to know what it is that we're putting in place and what can they expect. And even when you announce a major new policy, we never co design, we just say we're putting this in place and that's it. With CDP I'm changing it, I'm trialling five sites to become the Remote Community Engagement Program. And people who opt into that will only work a set number of hours for the minimum wage level, not CDP rate level. Mm-hmm. And we're looking at teams that they can work in within their community to make a difference, and they're working for their community. They're not working for the Commonwealth. They're not working for the Dole. I want them working for their community. But I'm going to go out to the Nunanjurri lands where one of the sites are, and I want to sit down with the traditional owners and the elders and community and say, this is what we can do. Government's not returning back to see the EP. We want to change it, and this is what I want your advice on. But so we've got to do some more work around joint planning, or as I call it, co-design, where they have a say as well. But I'll tell them where that sits in the context of the national strategy. And to all of you who are involved today, that's what we have to do. We really have to get out there and yarn with our people. Muriel and I have done this over a long time. We've known each other, I don't know for how many years, we were youngsters one time. But that now means that we have changed the way in which things work.
1: Thank you Minister. It always reminds me and and, and the whole conversation actually has reminded me of my own childhood and apologies to anyone who's heard me tell this story before but you know my Nana it's along you know it's Pradamba and people of the rivers so a lot of my learning and a lot of who I am today is rooted in the fact that come summertime the rains would push over from Western Australia and as they push over the rivers would run and it was Fundamental to survival when you're growing out bush to understand why you move when the move, rivers move, how to find fresh water, all of those sorts of things, and how to light fire. So those are the two things I always think about, and I, I feel so gifted that I was brought up in that environment because all those old manners that taught me to do that. It's when I make fire now that I see them, and it's like I've never lost them. I'm continually connected to those old people and trying to, you know, store your excitement as a kid when you jump out of that Toyota and you see that river running and it's been hot and you haven't seen running water for a very long time because there's no pools out bush and all you want to do is jump in that river. But you've been trained to understand that the first thing you do as a young child is care for other people. You have responsibilities and this is taught to you from the moment you were born as an Aboriginal person. You're born into responsibility. So the first thing would be unpack the car, go and find wood, light the fire, make the old men their cup of tea and make sure it was strong enough or you'd have to make that cup of tea again. And then we could jump in the rivers. And what those old ladies taught us was to, you know, throw our sticks in so that we could see where the current was. Where's it going fast? Where's it going slow? Where's it popping <coughs> underwater? And, of course, being children, we'd test those boundaries and those limits and we'd get a bigger stick and a bigger stick and a bigger stick and look for where the currents would drop underneath the water and how far they'd pop up. And that would tell us that we could actually go surfing on those currents, go underneath the water, get pulled underneath and popped up, but we'd test the sticks and test the sticks. Our nannas knew that we were doing that, and uh, they'd be walking along the bank of the creek uh, with stick, (laughs) just to remind us that there were other sticks, Uh, and it became an effort of resilience. So we got very, very good at treading water. And uh, it would be this, you know, this standoff, how long can you tread water in that running river before the old girls run out of legs and sit down and then forgive you because you've learnt your lesson, you're not going to do that again because you got cold and the food got eaten and all those sorts of things. So it is something that I absolutely treasure because those things, they teach you not only how to understand your environment, not only how to care for people, but also they teach you resilience and strength. They teach you how to take risks in a controlled manner, and they teach you that there are actually consequences whenever you take a risk, so how do you mitigate those things? What an absolute gift. Under Miriam, my next question sort of pins off that, and I we pointed to a little bit earlier, and that is that culture and community-led approaches are just vital to getting the best outcomes for our children in early childhood education and care. At this moment in time, most of what we hear has, has been focused on the enrolment of preschool, and We've got to look at what our children need to do at preschool. How do we do that? How do we shift the focus to look across the spectrum of early childhood? What is the of it?
4: I think um, it's a really challenging question because culture's not static. I mean, you know, your stories and my stories and everybody's stories talk about traditional, often traditional, and how do we, you know, embed that? I mean, we know that the children we work with, none of them typify what is traditional anymore. And so we've got many children that are growing up that have stolen genes and so they access their services. And sometimes it's the first time they've actually been exposed to any Aboriginal culture at all. And so I think the criticality of the early years services and the fact that their role really is not only to look at early years development but also to expose children to a strong culture and to create in parents the ability to understand and challenge and go out and investigate and look at their own identity. And so we see many flow on effects. But, I mean, if you look at early youth services, how they're different in the Northern Territories. They very much focus on a lot of parenting issues around bringing people together, sharing stories, being networks of support. It's different. But, you know, it's very traditional when you look at our early youth services in the Northern Territories. Yeah, very focused on playgroups. And when they come together, it's so exciting to see how they speak language and talk about Aboriginal children in a different context. And then when you look at urban environments, if you look at Melbourne, a lot of the particular challenges we have around child protection, a lot of the issues we have is there's not the same level of strong traditional knowledge around the families. But what the early years services do is to bridge that gap to be able to teach culture, to get children to be exposed to different Aboriginal art, to possible skin making, to singing in Aboriginal language. And so you see the early years growing our Aboriginal children. I've seen events like New South Wales, I remember the Aboriginal flag raising. On a Monday morning, the children would proudly march out the Aboriginal flag, raise the Aboriginal flag And then on a Friday afternoon, and they would sing their Aboriginal song and they would march the flag back in on a Friday afternoon. I've seen bush kindy in Shepparton and Rumbalara, where they go out with the children and and teach them about the bush and nature and and about the animals. And so for me, it's about understanding who you are, where you are. But often when you look at any evidence or you look at outcomes, no-one asks us, what are we achieving in the Aboriginal space? So you may look at, you know, mainstream around the mainstream indicators, and the ADI and all of those All pick up on developmentally, they pick up on how children are performing in the school, how they're learning on, you know, their hearing and their health. But they don't actually pick up on how they're learning about their Aboriginal culture. And if we don't pick that up, children that grow up, inculturated or acculturated away from their Aboriginal culture. Actually, don't grow up culturally safe because if I woke up to Minister Wyatt now, you know, and if I didn't know him, I'd ask him, who's your mob? Where are you from? Mm -hmm. If you imagine for an Aboriginal child not being able to say, who's your mob or where are you from? And I think it's critical that we give children the best start. My grandchildren went through an Aboriginal early years centre, YAPRA, And when they went to school, I remember my son was picking my granddaughter up from school and he said, oh, you're playing with your little friends. She said, no, they're not my friends, they're my cousins. But she wasn't related in any way to any of those children. It was the connection. Her ability to integrate into school and transition to school was amazing. She was strong in who she was because she'd gone through Yapa. And the early years experience create created, transitions children into school and makes them strong in culture and strong in who they are. Mm-hmm. So we all need to become advocates for the early years. We all need to stand up and be strong and push for a strong agenda and to be able to get help with our children. Because all my grandchildren have done much better because of their early years, because of their capacity to have good health checks, good maternal and child health housing and homelessness, no family violence, no drug and alcohol. We need to create safe environments for children. We need <coughs> to have a focus on giving children the best start in life.
1: Thank you, Ademira. Now I can see some questions coming through and some of them have probably been answered in bits and pieces and some of them I can have a crack at before I throw them to the, both of you. So we've got one here that says, you know, how do we see early learning and education being supported in remote communities with minimal resources available? And I think that speaks very largely to the overarching big picture framework, which is the closing <coughs> the gap framework, which looks at systemic reform across multiple pillars moving at once. None of these things are moving at the same time and we're continually looking at different ways to do it. So, Minister White, one of the big commitments from DESI was to expand the Connected Beginnings Program and to expand the CCCFR services. But of course, when you go out and you scope these things, what people look at is well, there's a criteria that you've got to be able to, to meet. Is there enough housing? Is there enough electricity? Is there enough qualified teachers out there? for qualified teachers get there in the first place? And that gets you to that other problem in that uh, when you're looking at remote communities well, there's not even houses for the teachers that live on community, the local teachers, the mob. So there are all these massive, massive system reform pieces that have to happen at once. Do we have the staff coming through? Do we have the education services available? Are these education services available? All these different types of things. Uh, Minister White, can you talk to us a little bit about how those bits and pieces can fit together?
2: It is challenging for governments and for bureaucracies because I think it was Muriel or yourself said earlier, there are guidelines that often frame the way in which services are provided. I think what we have to seriously consider, I, I've seen this with the work of John Moriarty in his home community, mm-hmm. where they've started Indie Kindy uh, with community involvement. But I also want to pick up on a comment that Muriel made because when I was asked about teacher education, I said to Lisa Paul, who's doing the review for Minister Tudge, stop thinking traditionally in terms of teacher education in terms of Aboriginal communities. Why don't we think about AEWs or AIEOs, depending on what they're called in jurisdictions, being rebadged as community teachers? Because most of them are teaching within classrooms or they're being assigned tasks. And if we change that thinking and they become community teachers but are given the opportunity of becoming the actual teacher in the future through different training approaches, then we'll start to see some dynamics change in this static approach that is based on guidelines and cannot see why we're not using cultural leaders as teachers within schools. I think one of the things that we've broken down through formal structures is the relationship of elders and the imparting of knowledge that is to the strength of culture. And so when we started to work through this process and Miriam and I had our first couple of uh, sessions and Richard Weston was involved, one of the things that I took back from our meeting was to talk with Minister Tudge about how do we expand the opportunities across the regions. And so both he and I went into what we call ERC, which is the Economic Review Committee, arguing mm-hmm. the additional resources together so we could expand the program. Mm-hmm. But he equally sees the need for flexibility. But The issue do we want is we want to see outcomes that show our kids are progressing on many fronts, not just whether it's literacy or numeracy, because we really are committed to having a difference made. I think we've got to look at what started to emerge in the 50s, and that was schooling was when you turned six. Before that, there were playgroups for the wealthy those who could afford to have play groups. And in WA, we started up the Aboriginal pre-pre-schools using a combination of Commonwealth and state money where we took four and five-year-olds, but if the three-year-old wanted to come with their brothers and sisters, because that's what we were finding in, in the centres that were run by Aboriginal people, we had 24 or 27 of them. And the community were involved. And what we saw was this incredible growth of community involvement And little ones coming with their brothers and sisters or cousins, but then progressing through to primary school without any major challenges. And it was exactly as Muriel described. That was part of all of our cousins, my my people. And Jitty Jitty, which is an Aboriginal school now in Bunbury, has a flow-on effect from all of that. And... They've done things differently. So we we do have to look at different models. We have to look at flexibility and try and consider the cultural context. It's not always going to be easy, but the challenges are there for us to solve and not to find a challenge is insolvable, but to look at what might be a solution that would even fit a very small community. And that might only be one person that becomes the community teacher who influences those children in the early stages of their life in concert with their mothers. Thank you, Minister.
4: Can I ask the Minister a question? Minister, I mean, I think a lot of the early years providers are really concerned about the level of welfare, work that they have to do with children and families and the level of trauma that they see in children. I'm wondering, do you think this strategy will help address some of those really big issues that, you know, you see in the presenting children, because we've got children coming from highly impoverished communities. We're seeing a significant drain on the services. And many of our early year services are saying a big percentage of their time is dealing with the welfare issues that are presenting with the children. And so they're really only responsible for the early years, providing that childcare and providing education support. Not really funded for
2: welfare, but welfare is a really issue. Yeah, just issue. very quickly, I think we've got some challenges of FASD in areas. I think we've yep. got challenges of trauma-related activities impacting on children. And we will need a whole-of-government approach on a number of fronts to deal with this. It's something I've been very mindful of. Mm-hmm. And I want to have a longer discussion with uh, you and Snake on this as to how mm-hmm. we bring into play others, because I want to involve Minister Rustin as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one of the other things that's coming up in the discussion forum or the questions it relates to how we develop the sector so for those of you who aren't across it one of the tools being developed as part of the closing the gap implementation plan is what they call a sector strengthening plan and that sector strengthening plan is looking at all of these different elements so staffing infrastructure cultural competency and when we're talking about cultural competency That is recognising that not only in the priority reforms is a commitment from governments to change what we understand about what is actual corporate competency, how do you measure it, how do you implement it. But all of those different pieces that the entire sector has has mentioned is missing are effectively embedded into that particular framework. One of the big initiatives that the government has has invested in to start with, in fact, the the, the only one that the virtual funding pool associated with the closing the gap framework to this point in time has been and it's brand new to um, help snake with what they call an intermediary now that essentially means that is the body but in the middle we've got one rolling already in new south wales works with members on the ground works with families on the ground to say this is where you can go this is what you need or what do you need how can we help you access it in order to start addressing some of those gaps Andy Muriel, I know you talk about it a lot. As we're closing up, one of the things that, again, when we are talking about how do we merge these two worlds, we know that we have things like the quality frameworks, and we know that this is a good thing. It's a good thing to have a quality framework, but we also know that Aboriginal people didn't develop it. What do we need to develop a quality framework that represents us?
4: I think quality was developed really sort of to give us some standards and to make sure that particularly that we were doing all that we can to protect children. But I think what we need to do is not so become so entrenched in meeting a whole number of standards and particularly remote areas around workforce, around qualifications. How do we be flexible? I think it's around how do we get to the type of standards that actually can bring about better outcomes? And I think it's around flexibility of our approaches. We can still deliver quality services. We know that we need to make sure that we have skilled workforce to be able to understand the development rate, to be able to bring about really good outcomes for children. No one denies that, but if it's at the risk of not being able to get centres up and going, I think that government needs to work with us. And I think our communities want skilled workers. We want to deliver quality services. There's no doubt about the fact that, we don't have that commitment. But I think if we're only looking at systems and not at what are we getting as far as outcomes for children, if we aren't investing in greater capacity to bring in different varieties, we need more parents involved in early years. We need yeah. to employ our families. We need to employ our communities. I think bringing people from external and, you know, we're bringing people from other countries, you know, Northern Territory is full of people that come from other places to come and work there. We need to grow our own. We need to have a focus on how do we grow our own people to deliver. I mean, Bachelor in in Northern Territory have an amazing job of churning out, you know, a workforce and teachers and skilled. They've got a great focus. Let's build a greater focus on early years workers. Let's get our own parents to become early years workers. Why don't we build our own community? I think we can be innovative and different. I just don't think... We challenge it, but I do agree. I agree with having quality services and I do agree with having some understanding that that protects our people, our communities, and makes our organisations safe. Yeah, I think, Catherine, if we don't take into consideration digital poverty and start to address technology and the fact that the future of our communities is digital. And when we had COVID hit in Victoria, We had so many families that didn't have a computer in their home, didn't have access to technology. Minister, I would say, how do you do your homework if you don't have a computer in your home? How do you Mm -hmm. actually access the resources and the learning materials? And I just think that we need to have an absolute drive to understand digital poverty and how it affects, because it's now on the UN as another indicator of poverty and so We already know that we're entrenched in the poverty cycle, so digital poverty has to be something we give greater attention
3: to. You've been listening to SNAKE Chair Adjunct Professor Muriel Bamblett and the Minister for Indigenous Australians Ken Wyatt. They were taking part in the 2021 SNAKE National Conference held last December. The event was facilitated by SNAKE CEO Catherine Little and coincided with the release of the National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Early Childhood Strategy. And if listeners want to find a copy of the report, it's available on the National Indigenous Australians Agency website, niaa.com. That's the show for this week. Join us again next week when we continue our focus on proposed reforms to the child protection sector and services to First Nations communities. Speaking Out is on Facebook and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au. We would love to hear from you. I'm Larissa Berendt and this is Speaking Out.